Before we get going, here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. My guest on this episode of the Grant Williams podcast is my old mate Julian Brigden of MI2 Partners, a man whose macro perspective on financial markets is always among the most thoughtful and insightful you'll find anywhere. This conversation has been a long time in coming, and I'm absolutely delighted to finally be getting the chance to chat with Julian at, let's face it, something that looks to be a very pivotal moment in the struggle between central banks, economic forces, and the old bugbear of inflation. Now, we covered acres of ground in this conversation, and Julian demonstrated perfectly why he's such an invaluable resource in the macro space. So buckle up and enjoy my conversation with Julian Brigden. Julian, mate, so good to finally get a chance to sit and chat with you. It's, uh, I've got no idea what we're going to talk about. There's really so little going on. How <laughs> <laughs> have you been, all right? Been very good. Yes, I've been very, very good. It's um, it's really exciting times. I mean, I, you know, I I'm one of those old gits, and I started off sort of cutting my teeth in the sort of ERM crisis, and I think you know, taking on central banks, and I think that has truly warped my yeah, right. sense of being. Right. So I. I generally don't like, I like fading these guys. I like being a contrarian. And, you know, it doesn't mean that you don't you don't get invested and you don't sit here. But I just sort of sit and look at this stuff. And, and my inclination is not to believe these guys, right? Yeah. My, my total, you know, visceral gut is, is to just go against them. And this is one of those times where I just feel it's just like my time. Well, you know, it's so, it's so funny you say that because I, I was kind of running through in my head a bunch of things to talk about. And then you put a tweet out this morning and I thought, ah, that's the perfect place to start. And, and it was central bank related. You know, we, we saw today the um, the checks raise rates and the Bank of England leave them unchanged despite every newspaper in the UK preparing everybody for yeah. a rate hike. Yeah. And, you, and you, you put a tweet out and you talked about whether the, the big central banks are now so far offside that they're completely trapped. And, and I've, I've had a lot of discussions with people about the big central banks being trapped. And I think mm-hmm. that word trapped means different things to different people or mm-hmm. they're trapped in multiple different ways. And, right. And, and I kind of like to use snookered, but I didn't in the right. tweet because I, <laughs> right. I think, you know, not everyone understands that analogy, but it means... No matter how, you know, you've got two balls and there's a ball in the middle and, you know, if you understand snooker, like like pool, you know, but you just can't, no matter what you do, you just can't make that shot. Yeah. Well, without without going a really weird way and finger yeah. crossing your fingers, right? So it is it, actually, your fingers. it is a really good analogy. So, so let's talk about that. Let's talk about what happened today and then let's talk about why you think that sends just another signal that these guys are snookered. And we're going to keep using the word snookered to hell with it. Everyone can Google it if they're not sure. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so, so look, we've been in the inflation camp for a while. I mean, do you remember when we did that conversation in, at Harvard and we talked about yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. You know, quite a few years ago. And, and, and I've been sort of playing in my mind that 
you know, from a very, very big picture perspective that we, the analogous period is really the, where we are now is the late 60s. You know, we're not yet in the 70s. Whenever sort of people talk about the 70s to me, I think we need it. Not Could yet. we get there? Yes. We need a number of things to fit into, into place. But we're in a, in a period of the late 60s where, you know, societally we've just shifted too far one way. We're coming back the other way. You know, people who don't remember period of the late 60s, period of huge social turmoil. I mean, major assassinations, right? Yeah. Not just Kennedy, right. but but you know, many public figures. Um, and, but it was brought about by this sort of clash of, of generations and wealth discrepancies and uh, objective, di di massive objective differences between groups. And we've been coming to that point. And Trump was a manifestation of that. Brexit was a manifestation of that. But when Trump started to come in and use a pro-cyclical fiscal stimulus at a time where it was truly unnecessary from an economic perspective. I think to me, that was the, the eureka moment because, you know, all right, he directed it all to the wrong people, um, you know, and really to his buddies rather than to the man on the street. But it was a, a manifestation of the need for government to get involved. And we'd gone through, and, and that was, you know, 08 really was the beginning, but that was really the nail in the coffin of what I would call sort of laissez-faire free economics, which you and I are products of through the sort of Thatcher-Reagan kind of era, right? And so once government starts to get going and get involved, um, the risk is you get misallocation of resources, you start that inflationary process, you've had a long extended period of, of deflation. Um, and in fact, uh, you know, I was reading this fantastic paper by the Bank of England, uh, it was written on the Bank of England's website from 2017 the other day talking about, you know, real rates from 1311. You're right. I love that. Right? I, you can just imagine that some bloke at the Bank of England is going down in the vaults and blowing off the dust off this chart and going, I've got the one from 1350 to 1420 here, right? <laughs> Let's join them up. Um, but anyway, I mean, it was just, uh, it, it, it was very interesting. And they talked about these bouts of real rate depressions and how they end and how consistently they end and so on and so forth. But this, and the 60s was, was one of those. And it ended quite violently because government started to spend, they spent at the wrong time. The central bank was forced to adopt a certain policy to accommodate government because ultimately they decided it wasn't their job to fight government, right, right. right? I mean, there was a, in the late 60s, in the, well, in the sort of uh, second half of the 60s, there, were, there was a point where the Fed should have told government when they were intent in spending their money on guns and butter, in an economy that was massively overheating, where they were seeing gold reserves leave every two weeks because um, the US was running a massive kind of count deficit because it was overheating, where they should have come in and they should have said, screw you, rates are going up, we're protecting the dollar in Bretton Woods, and we don't care. What they did was they got politicized. And they said, you know, they reiterated, you know, the Fed statement, uh, founding statement, which was the Fed is independent um, within government, but is not independent of government. Yeah. And so they accommodated the government spending. In fact, they did QE between like 66 and 69. 
And the net result was um, that inflation accelerated and it became this, one of my quants talked about this, this, if you look in physics, you know, most things in economics are true as well, right? I mean, markets too, they're kind of a sine wave. They're self-limiting at the top and the bottom because things kind of overheat, things get too expensive, people back off, you know, demand drops a bit, you know, so on and so forth. But if you hit that thing at the wrong time, then that wave actually starts to oscillate in an increasingly volatile, um, accelerative oscillation. And this is what one of my quants, who's a mining explosive expert, I had to hire the guy. I mean, who wouldn't hire a guy who's a (laughs) mining explosive expert? Um, Anyway, and, and, and this is what happened in the late 60s. And I think this is what we're doing now, right? Because... The system before has been very balanced. You know, you raise a little bit, you bloat a bit, you know, tighten a little bit, you eased a bit, right? And then the oscillations are very controlled. We've had this period of intense tranquility in markets. And then kind of 08 happened, and then clearly the pandemics happened. And it's forcing these response functions from government, which in it of themselves are just pushing the cycle further and further and further out of whack. And the problem that governments have got now, and I include fiscal and monetary authorities within that, is the choices that they're facing are not easy, right? They are essentially snookered when it comes to nice options. So I wrote an op-ed the other day and I said, well, Let's take, for instance, let's say the Fed has completely got it wrong. Not, I mean, they made some assumptions. We all make assumptions. We make trades in markets. You get it wrong, right? What are their choices? Well, they can jack up rates, right? Well, there's a problem there. The U.S. deficit is appalling. Uh, you look at the growth of the deficit, you know, during COVID, look at where we're starting, look at much worse than the starting point was in the 60s. That sensitivity around the budget is really going to start to bite, uh, you know, at some point. So they're going to run and they're going to run straight into, you know, um, Yellen and Biden, you know, and they're in those guys' pockets. Yeah. You know, are they really prepared, right? Really prepared. I mean, didn't Powell just you know, a few months ago, tell government, spend money, right? I'm, you know, he exactly- He them to, so yeah, he's, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's complicit now. So it's very difficult for him to do that. Not only though, would it piss off government, but given the leverage in the system, we know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. right? Raul and I have talked about this on Macro Insiders. We just laugh, right? You just wait for the next sell-off, right? And because, you know, we've got- in the US, we've got these duration stocks that utterly dominate the major indexes, right? So you just raise bond yields and these things all pop. Um, and, you know, that is, prob- and, and given the financialization in the real economy, um, the danger is that the minute the equity market drops, you're, I mean, I've got charts, you can go and do it yourself. Take the, take the NYSE and take jolts. Right? Same fucking chart. So it's the same line, right? Same line. So if you hammer the equity market, oh, all of a sudden your jobs are going to 
disappear. You know, your capex is all going to drop because we've got a bunch of CEOs who are paid to be shepherds of an equity price, not totally. make anything, yep, totally. right? Not make anything. So, so that's one option. Second option is they sort of placate it and they play for time and they hope desperately that they're wrong. And maybe at the end of the day, they just say we we can't do it. And they just keep financial repression in place. Well, at some point, you've got to, if you're the US, attract buyers for, for debt, right? And they're not going to want to buy it. So what does the central bank do? Well, maybe they increase QE yet again, right? To just balance the equation. I mean, the reason why bond yields, are, I'm very much convinced, have fallen at long end of the curve since March is because between QE at 120 billion a month and the running down of the Treasury General account, effectively you were withholding mm -hmm. 300 billion plus month dollars of, of, of bonds from the market a, a month, right? So if they if they let it run, you know, and they lose control of the long end of the bond market, you know, they're right back at square one. So these options are not easy now, right? So I think they're sitting there. And I think clearly this morning was an example of that. You know, if you're the Czech central bank, if you're the RBA. I mean, could you imagine if the Fed did what the RBA did? Right. Right. I mean, what absolute total carnage would there be in the global financial markets? Yeah. Right. I mean, so in fairness to the Fed, they are at a, at a highly elevated state, right? They cannot, in terms of importance to the world, they cannot do, they don't have the the flexibility that an RBA, uh, an RBNZ, a Czech National Central Bank, a uh, Bank the of Poles, Canada, the does. Russians, all, yeah, right? Yeah, you know, yeah. they don't have that luxury, and and nor does the ECB because they're trying to prop up bloody Italy, right? And it, the Bank of England sort of does, but they're in a very difficult situation because the UK runs a vast current account deficit, right? And they. If this is really stagflation, which might be in the UK, because you've got signs of the consumer mm -hmm. beginning to buckle, and they raise too much, and the consumer cracks, and but you've got inflation at the same time, then the pound gets. Pre I mean, it's a, they're in a, they're in a bit of a difficult yeah. situation because of the current account, but the Fed and the ECB, I think they're playing for time in a desperate hope. That this all goes away, Grant. Well, you know, I, I think. But, yeah. What, Sorry, what's, mate. What, no. What's interesting when you talked about uh, the first thing is okay. What do they do if they realise they're wrong? What are their options? And at, at that point, I think about that and I go, well, if they realise they're wrong, they can never admit that because <laughs> uh, but, but around everything else, this whole thing. And to, to your point just now about what the, the positions these different central banks are in, it's all built upon a foundation of confidence in the Federal Reserve, right, that we've, we've got right. this. And if they were ever to say, you know what, we were completely wrong about this, and right. I mean, therefore the RBA basically did, right? Which the but RBA did. Which the oh, RBA did. You know, sorry, guys. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And we saw the three-year, uh, three-year go from 15 basis points to yeah. 75 basis points overnight. And, and, and your point is absolutely correct, that you can kind of get away with that if you're the Aussies, kind of. I mean, they're on the, I think they're on the, on the edge of this kind of divide between right. the, the cans and the can'ts. But that confidence, because if that confidence goes, and the ECB is in exactly the same position as the Fed, if that right. confidence goes, it doesn't matter what they say at that point, try, no. try and get confidence back when it's gone, no chance. Right. 
So I think they're an incredibly difficult time because I just, I, I don't see this stuff. So again, I mean, I think it's interesting that neither Powell and even Lagarde didn't really fight the market, right? I mean, the Bank of England was an absolute bloody shambles. I mean, yeah. today, right? I mean, total shambles. Oh, you know, we don't direct the market. Wait a second, you just directed the market a few weeks ago to start pricing yes. in hikes, right? And now you're trying to dial them back and you don't direct them. I mean, total, total shambles. But, um, you know, neither Lagarde or uh, Powell really pushed too far against the market because I think they've realised they've got to try and let some pressure out of the system. But when I look what's coming down the pipeline, mate, I, this is not over, right? No, I mean, we've got a got squeeze in, in these front ends over the last few days, but the inflation prints that I see are ginormous. Yeah. I mean, I was just looking at, no one noticed today, Eurozone PPI went to 16%, yep. Yep. right? Yep. Yep. I mean, that, you know, Sweden's already at 18, 45-year highs for the second time in two months, right? New highs for the second time in two months. So you've got to assume that if you could get the data for the Eurozone, it would also be 45-year highs, right? Spain, 23.6%, right? Yeah. Well, the problem, let's just take the Eurozone, right? I mean, the Eurozone, 16%. HICP is four. Four. So three options here. Somehow, miraculously, Eurozone input price pressures just dissipate. Just right? Well, if you, if you read what market's telling you, right, the PMI, you know, there, that, that's not happening, right? They're happily... And they continue to see price pressure, you know, all along the thing. They've yet to absorb these. I mean, these, these are numbers even before you put the all the gas price increases that they had mm -hmm. in Europe right into the system. But that's another probably couple of months to feed through. And those those numbers are just catastrophic. Um, well done, Putin. You know, yeah. so uh, that doesn't seem likely. The price pressure dissipating just doesn't seem likely. Option number two. Uh, firms eat the costs, right? Well, really? I mean, it's a hell of a <laughs> lot. a lot of costs. It's a lot of costs, right? Now, I mean, I think Europe is closer to a somewhat stagflationary scenario than the US is just very simply because these cost increases are just so enormous, right? I mean, I just don't know how, if you're in Sweden, you know, you push through an 18% price increase, right? I mean, right, maybe you right. can push a 10% price increase through, but you're going to get some margin compression, but you're certainly going to push you through. And once again, market and all these PMIs tell you, and this is what happens, Grant, when you, as policymakers, cock it up and misjudge the cycle and massively over overcook this thing, right? Massive, particularly in the US, right? Create this huge aggregate demand uh, excess, right? And this is the problem, right? I mean, Powell, they, they won't acknowledge this, right? They call it bottlenecks. There's a reason why there are bottlenecks, chaps. You totally created too much demand, right? Yeah. I mean, PCE on goods, personal consumption expenditure, goods expenditure is 27% higher currently than it was pre 
the pandemic. And I loved it how Powell said, don't worry, there's just, you know, there's some excesses now in the goods sector, but that that's good demand will drop and it will go into the service sector. Yeah. Okay, yeah. mate. Well, there already demand is 2% over. And did you not just see ISM prices paid for the service sector? Historic all-time highs. What makes you think that that service sector, when there was, you know, a big part of that is hospitality, leisure, right? Or they yeah. can't get workers, period, end of story, that they're just going to be easily able to absorb it and take it through. So I think these price increases coming through are going to be ginormous. I mean, I, I think realistically, you could possibly see Eurozone HICP. I mean, as I said, the data doesn't go that far back, but if you look at the spread between PPI and HICP or their CPI, it only goes back to the late 90s, but the largest it's ever been has been five. Right. Right? So let's say five. What does that mean for HICP? That means... 11. 11, yeah, double digits, yeah. 11, right? I mean, this isn't spinal tap, right? My amp goes to 11, <laughs> right? 11. Let's just say it just goes to eight. That's double here. I mean, what credibility are these guys going to have at that point? They better turn up that printing press because I'm not sure who's going to want to own buns yeah. at these levels. And there's no way your eyeball, which... We've been trading this thing pretty aggressively since last few months and made you know good money. It got squeezed in the last 24, 48 hours. But I just want to sell on every rally because this we're trading the ERZ3, so the December uh, 23 so, yeah. contract. It was still trading basically at 100. So in other words, no zero rates, 27, you know, 26 months out. Yeah. Uh, really? Really? Then these numbers I just think could be enormous. In the US, I think I've got one model that's telling me core PCE, the Fed's favorite little one, yep. doubles from here. Seven. Seven. I, I just and, and people can afford it. And it's losing the stagflation. As I said, in Europe, the number, the increases are so enormous that I think stagflation is a is a risk. But in the US, I think we're in the absolute sweet spot of for inflation. I think we have massively goosed monetarily. I mean, you know, money supply, the growth that we saw last year doesn't doesn't you don't just sort of turn it off and by, oh, by the way, we're not going at at thirty uh, percent. We're still in the low, yeah. but we're still in the low T double digits, right? We're still in the low double digits. You don't just sort of turn this off and then it just fritter away this stuff has to work its way through the system um we've got wage growth at five percent right we've got people working overtime there's a there's a great weekly series which effectively um uh, gives you pre-tax take home well it's at 11 percent for non-supervisory workers so they can quite happily afford five percent cpi mm -hmm. right so i just think we're in this Apps, you know, I was talking to clients the other day and they're in the muni space. They said, oh, all these states are shit sitting on all this money still that they got from the government last year. They haven't spent it yet. They're just starting to try and spend it. I know oh, we need to do some infrastructure. I know oh, we need to do this. The, the, the sheer quantity of money is 
he's mind-blowing. I mean, I have a client, really brilliant guys, really, really brilliant guys. They went back and they looked at 28 countries, 120 years in each of data in each country. Mm-hmm. And they looked at the impact of fiscal and monetary spending. And what they discovered that when it was either fiscal or monetary, the inflation impact was relatively limited. When you fired both barrels together above a certain amount, then you got inflation. Their forecast, Grant, is start of 23, core US CPI at 10. And they put a 90 delta on that using 28 different countries as a model and 120 years worth of data in each one. Now, I've looked at it. I can't quite get to those numbers, but I can get to some pretty, I can get to six, seven. Let's put it at six. Exactly. I was going to say, let's put it at six and see how the world changes. and, 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 And this is the point. I think these central banks have got, the big central banks now, the stakes are so high that I looked at Powell yesterday and it was even less credible than Jackson Hole. I mean, we actually wrote a piece after his Jackson Hole piece where he went and said, oh, it's a very narrow group or it's this or it's transitory or looked at these trimmed metrics or, you know, the Dallas trimmed PCE or whatever the hell it is, right? You know, oh, and this and this and that. And we actually wrote this piece called The Man Does Protest Too Much, right? And we went through and we took the Fed's own data and just went wrong, 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 wrong. And he's doing the same thing again because I think he's really trapped. And I think they've got to try and convince markets that transitory, and you can see already how transitory has slipped in the last month or so. Transitory is now mid-year. Yeah. That they've got to try and buy themselves time in the hope that something bad happens. I mean, I think he must be, you know, Lagarde and him must be sitting there at night going, please let there be another wave of COVID, like a really nasty right. wave of COVID, please, <laughs> please. But but, it, but, you know, but even then, the governments aren't going to help them because if we get another wave of COVID, we know what's going to happen. Stimulus yeah. checks are going to come flying out again <laughs> straight away. So, I mean, it, 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 this, this is, you know, th- th- this has been the corner that we've been waiting for these guys to paint themselves into for, I mean, look, for years, let's face it, because this road has been, they haven't changed the road they're going on. They've just nope. accelerated it and now they've got another car on the road with them driving neck and neck and form the government. Yeah. But it, it, it's interesting because there, there are still guys, mutual friends of ours, super smart guys who are still pounding the deflationary drum. Right. You know, I, I always go back to Lacey Hunt and Dave Rosenberg, brilliant guys. Yeah. And they make an argument for this, oh, it's all been transitory and, you know, the the job numbers are a problem, wages are a problem, but now we're starting to see wages come through. And I think you you tweeted the other day about the differing response to, to wages from the ISM and, again, from Powell, right, talking about the two different <laughs> viewpoints. So, so let's talk about wages because that, that's kind of been the missing component Correct. right the way through this Correct. whole piece, right? That's been Correct. the missing component. Correct. So w- where are we in the wage cycle? So look, I you know, let me first clarify. I mean, I'm very much in favour that I think things have got, I started off by saying that, I think societally things have swung too far, right? I mean, yep. a bunch of billionaires buggering off to space. I think 99% of the population would have said, just stay there. 
right? Can you right, just leave your money here? <laughs> leave your money there, yeah. there and just right. turn the engine yeah. off when you get up there, right? <laughs> I mean, I mean, it just vulgarity of 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 wealth discrepancies, which are, which are just absurd. So, you know, I'm very much a believer that this has to get uh, redressed, but I'm certainly old enough to remember what Labour militancy, vaguely, right? I remember sitting at home with mum and dad, you know, having lunch during the week, or having dinner during the week, and at six o'clock, the miners turned the power yep. off, basically, right, in the UK. And everything, and you got your light out. And I, and I was like five or six, and it was exciting. We played Monopoly or Cluedo, right, around a gas lamp, right, or the fire, right? So I remember what it was like, and, I, and I'm struck by this John Deere, you know, uh, dispute, right? So the rumour was that John Deere uh, last week, and it appears to be the case, had offered 10% for the first year, like five and six for year two and three, a eight, a, you know, a cash element and all these sorts of things. So you've got to think, you know, you average that out, you're probably looking at six to seven percent. Mm-hmm. And the guys went, up yours, right? Up yours. Because the CEO has had it away with long with senior management for so many years, in down years, good years, we haven't really seen a real pay rise in real terms for decades. No. Right? No. I mean, I was listening to something on the BBC World Service and they were interviewing three people in the in the uh, in the leisure industry uh, on the restaurant industry here in the US and one had been a a chef and she you know got sort of laid off and now she'd found a job in a gig as a as a private chef for a family in the Bahamas so she worked you know half the amount of time got paid twice as much and lived in the Bahamas it's a bit bit like you mate um <laughs> so I can't cook um another girl had been you know an events bar organizer and she ran these huge bars at like stadiums you know where they were you know the rolling stones right, right. place right and she said you know i'm managing a, mud- a budget of a million bucks or something on on this night you know in terms of drinks and she was making you know 70 grand a year or something which struck me as not enough anyway and then basically she had gone off and done and she had kids and it was increasingly stressful because she worked till four in the morning or something and now she was off doing a job um, oh, she'd gone to be a mortgage broker, and they said, "Oh, you know, you could you could work quite long days here, like 10, 11 hours." And she just laughed, right? So all these people, you know, as one guy had been something else, and he, you know, he he got his foot had got injured, and they didn't have workers' comp because he's fat and fido, and no one really cared. And he just said, "You know, it's a really tough environment. I mean, this is a half these jobs that people have existed on in the United States, particularly in the United States, right? Existed yeah. having to run four or five jobs to make ends meet. They've suddenly realised there are other opportunities, and they've moved on and they've done different things, and it's going to take an enormous amount of incentives to get these people. I mean, I, I listened to Chairman of ISM the other day. He said, you know, basically he said we're not getting prices back to where they were without a global recession or depression. Right? These things are just not going back. Employment right, exactly. remains a singular problem. He talked specifically, which is funny because Powell used exactly the different language. And that's what I tweeted, right? Powell said, there is no wage spiral. And this guy said, definitively, there's a wage spiral. Because he said, 
an example he gave on this interview he did, and this is a guy, I think he works for um, Ryder, the trucking company, right? I think he's the purchasing manager for that, but he oversees the whole lot. And he's very, very good. And I love listening to these guys. I think they give you an enormous degree of granularity and they haven't put a foot wrong in terms of calling the cycle. And he talks about, you know, well, the problem is, is you hire two guys at the beginning of the week. And at the end of the week, two other guys walk away. So you just can't, because the firm down the, the, the road gives them an extra dollar an hour. So you just can't stay on top of this thing. And he said, this thing is just, people are wage chasing. How do you break that cycle? Yeah, well, I you just can't don't, take these things back. Not easily, mate. Not easily. I think there's a reticence of firms to get involved in this thing. But when you create, which is what these policymakers have done, when you truly create price inelastic demand, right? There is just so much money in the system. Then what do you expect is going to happen to inflation? Right? There's only yeah. one, one place that I truly see stagflationary price action in the US where literally, and I and I like to use a narrow definition of stagflation. So in other words, price-driven demand destruction. So prices get so high that people back away. Yeah. And the only big, and I'm sure the little areas, like, I mean, I got sticker shock when I looked at eating a steak the other day. Right? I mean, it was yeah. it was like an 80-buck yeah. steak now. And I'm like, Jesus, I don't think I, it better be really good. And it, they're never quite as good as you think they're going to be. So I had, it, I had the chicken. Um, but but the, the only place that I see... Um, truly driven, uh, demand-driven, oh, sorry, price-driven demand destruction is in housing, where house prices have got so high, so high, that people are just going, uh, yeah. We've I reached can't unaffordable it. now, yeah. It's yeah. unaffordable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a big difference if you take a $500,000 house, uh, you know, 18 months ago, and it's now a six hundred or $650,000 house. I mean, $150,000 is a... Is, is a materially quantum different amount that if you say you take a Ford F-150 truck, if you could get it and someone said, you've got to pay five grand over sticker and you yep. go, fine. Yep. I'm spreading the payments out these days over 68 months anyway. Right? Right. So what right. the hell does it matter, right? Well, and, and look, and also I think people underestimate the fact that with the pandemic so recent in everybody's memory and the fact that a year ago people couldn't buy bread or toilet roll, or right. cleaning products. For, yeah. Now, no matter how much money they were willing to throw at it. Yeah. So again, you know, today those prices are ten percent higher. People won't even blink. They go, well, yeah. you know, it's either that or what if I can't get them. Yeah. So I mean, I've never quite yeah. understood Lou Roll in, in COVID. I mean, it was never a gastric <laughs> thing, but, but, I, but I do get, I do get where you're coming from. But uh, but, 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 no, but but this is these are these are the things, right? That's it's that it's that mindset issue again. Yeah. Whether it's confidence in the Fed or belief that inflation is here to stay. You can't. So there was, a, there was an interesting paper that was written by the DC Fed, and I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but it talked, it analyzed the late 60s and the beginning of the sort of foothills of inflation, right? And we went basically from this halcyon period of the early 60s where inflation was essentially a, a flat line. Okay, really, it was literally up 0.2, down 0.2, around sort of one and change, right? 
no one was running back then going the international sign of distress you know because right, we right. didn't have as much debt right so it wasn't exactly de deflation wasn't the issue but we came in and we get the we get the first round of spending related to johnson's great society and it pushed the economy out of whack and inflation goes relatively quickly from sort of don't quote me on this one and a half to sort of three and change and the fed gets muscly comes in and hits it and that sort of strikes me as as uh, as the Fed in in 2018, right? Where they get, you know, they're really getting yeah. sort of charged up, and then then it all goes horribly wrong. The equity market collapses in '66. The housing market takes a hit, and then they all panic, right? And they give it all back, and they ease into this ongoing fiscal spending. And then slowly over the next wave, we move up to six, right? We're not. This is not the 70s, right? No, nope. this is not the 70s. Okay, this is just an normal cycle where the dollar is actually pegged, where oil prices were actually pegged and controlled by the seven sisters, right? This was not a freely, this was just excess money thrown at an economy and what it did. And there was a Fed paper written where they said it may only have taken two years for, a, you know, classic central banking, inflation expectations to become unhinged. Yeah. Right, unhinged, and I think they're absolutely playing with fire. Now, I, I, I can see, uh, you, you know, how uh, Rosenberg could be right. Okay, I think there are some things out there where you could have a big shift in inventory spending in, in the inventory cycle mid-year because you could find suddenly that all these semi-finished goods, we've got very high inventories of manufacturers. I mean, just think of it, cars, right? The car guys are built. All these bloody cars, they still keep building these bloody cars. They must be filling fields in Michigan, right? But they're missing two chips. And then there's a bloke who runs around when the chips arrive and goes, ching, 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 ching. Yep. And then all yep. of a sudden, the dealers are awash, right? So you go from famine to feast overnight, right? I could see that. I can see a situation where we don't get any fiscal spending, you know, and maybe that happens. You know, I can see problems in China. But right here, right now, for a timetable that truly matters to markets, right? So, uh, and six months is way too long, but let's say six months is, right, as you know, and I know, you know, a week is a lifetime in, yeah, in trading yeah. markets, right? So yeah. six months is, is, is just what, but let's just say for the next six months, I see nothing. I see an economy in the US, which is 15, 16 months into the expansion, in an expansion that is, we've had five, I think, since 2000. They're three years in length. We have an inventory cycle, which is one of the most powerful economic cycles in the broad cycle which hasn't even started where you, you know and you listen to what these you know these these uh, these market or the ism guys say they can't even begin to get on top of inventories right supply problems aren't getting easier the transportation problems are actually according to the ism manufacturing actually getting worse they're not getting better prices are you know were going down they're now re-accelerating you've got Waged, you've got labor demand that is literally off the sodding charts, right? I mean, I've got a chart where I look at one metric and it correlates absolutely beautifully with unemployment. It leads by six months and 
it says that uh, let's let's you know Powell says don't worry you know people will come back into the labor force you know really haven't you just goosed people's 401ks to the point that they don't have to come back and there's two to three million people who've retired and there's people I mean I met I, met, I went to the doctor the other day to get a checkup and the technician was like yeah you know my wife got offered a great job in Atlanta I'm going I don't know whether I'm going to work Right, I, I'm going to have to do an hour and a half commute to go to a hospital where I'd want to work. I did that when I was in Miami. I can't face that. I just don't know whether I'm going to have to, right? So you've got people who are stepping back, but this chart says even if everyone, everyone came back into the jobs market, unemployment's going to, job demand would drive unemployment conceptually to one. No one. One percent <laughs> right so we've got off the charts job demand we've got wages growing up five percent we've got the beginnings of labor militancy we haven't even talked about what i think is going on on the credit side which i think is the banks are revving the engines to lend again right i mean People don't realize this, but if you, if you take a chart of bank stocks and you look at it against bank lending, it's heavily correlated. Not surprisingly, because the bank's stock is an integral part of their capital base, right? Wells Fargo is just about to get permission to start to loosen up their balance sheet, having been in the sin bin for a number yep, of yep, years. Yep. We've got uh, bank willingness to lend to consumers at decade highs, which would support retail sales growth of 8 to 10%. You've got, you know, which is generally a little high. You've got their willingness to lend to corporations at record 30-year highs. So, and corporations are beginning to borrow because they want to invest in CapEx because eventually, yep. of course, we all know what will happen is they will replace all these highly expensive workers with a machine, right, that goes ping. The only problem being... They can't get the shiny machine this year. Maybe they can get it next year or the year after, because it takes a while. You don't just sort of rejig as McDonald's your whole user experience in two weeks, right? It takes two, three, four years. You have to yeah. put it in the test store, see it doesn't completely fuck up, right? Roll it out. So this stuff is eventually going to come. But I just don't see how this is an economy that withers and dies in a time frame that is quick enough to save these central banks, given what I think inflation is going to do in the next two to three months. I think we're heading almost inevitably for an, to another policy era. So let's talk about that exact problem, right? What do the central banks do? Because you're right, the chance of policy era are almost 100% at this point, because the eye of this needle they've got thread is just way too small. Right. So what do you think they're likely to do? Because I, I just, it feels like they're going to have to resort to unusual and coercive measures, because the alternative is to admit they're wrong. And as we've already discussed, that topples just about every domino on the board at once. So what, what is there anything they can do other than, you know, we saw the Aussies try yield curve control. It worked for a while. And then, I mean, it didn't even feel like they were under pressure, the RBA. They just kind of, 
it felt like they didn't like the free carry they were giving people and the, and the chance they were giving them just more profits. Right. It didn't even feel like anyone was taking a run at them. They were all kind of playing nicely and going, hey, this is a great little gig. If we, if we don't take the piss, we can make a lot of money here for a long time. So is there anything they can do at this point? Not easily. Uh, and I, I've sat here and I thought this through, and I think the answer is not easily. I mean, I do, don't get me wrong, I think these these guys are really genuinely trying to do their best, right? I mean, I do not think there's a coercive bone in these guys' bodies. You know, I don't think they're a bunch of insider traders. I think they're a bunch of genuinely patriotic individuals who are trying to do their best to hold the system together. Uh, it's just a system that is just getting increasingly fragile. Right. And, you know, you're in this accelerative oscillation of the cycle where essentially everything you try and do creates another problem. And that's why I think, you know, this is an increasingly unstable thing. So we've now, you know, what are obvious problems? Well, an obvious problem is that we've taken... And you can track this, take the PE of the S&P and put it against the Fed's balance sheet, right? When they started doing QE, you know, PEs were 14. Mm -hmm. Well, they double that now, right? They've created these trillion-dollar companies. I mean, you and I have had our beef with Elon, right? You know, but there is there's never been in history a one point two or maybe it was 1.3 as of close today trillion dollar company with a forward pe a forward pe grant of 200 right of 200 now i mean i'm very clear how you create a classic bubble right i mean classic bubble is a great story and it's a fucking great story tesla's a great story Right, mm -hmm. but if there's no money to fund it, there's no story. Yeah, right. There's literally no story. Okay. Well, there was enormous quantities of money when they did the the not QE repo thing. Mm -hmm. When you know Tesla was sitting at two hundred, and the next thing it does, it just goes parabolic. Okay. And it's going parabolic again because we've just created this, you know, narrative around it. And I mean, literally, this thing has gone in the last few weeks from, you know, a thousand or 900, basically. And now we're at 1300. 13, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is just so much money. How do you. They, I think they can try. And as I said to you, I think they can try and play for time. Right. I think they they hope that they can play for time. So if you're the Fed, you can slowly maybe you maybe you can speed it up a bit. You can go to 20 billion a month, but you could end the balance sheet expansion, right? But I think people need to remember tapering isn't tightening, girls and boys. Right. right. Tapering is less easy. Right. So we're going to go from 120 to 105 to 90. Right. I got in a crash at 20 fucking miles an hour, right? <laughs> if you, it hurt, 
It's buggered my back up for life. Imagine if we hit the output gap and we're still doing 70. 70, yeah. 70. And by the way, we closed the nominal G output gap with the last GDP print. Something that we didn't manage to do from the GFC for a decade. In fact, we actually didn't get there quite. We were really close at the end of 19, closing that, which would have been a whole decade plus later. We've done in 18 friggin' months and we're back to trend nominal GDP. Trend nominal GDP. So I think they are desperately trying to play for time in the hope that somehow, miraculously, that they can either con the market and hold the markets in. But I do, you know, so maybe they can increase QE. They can they can say, well, you're not wrong, markets, you know, to price in some moderate hikes like the Bank of England. You know, you're not, we should encourage you to do something, right? So the market goes and prices in something and then they say oh uh, maybe you've done a bit too much right we don't like that so i think we're in this period like this but i think they're going to be challenged horribly by the by the data and there comes a the point where these ladies and gentlemen will gird their loins and they will become as we have seen the unreliable boyfriend right, right. they will become they will, they will tell you, we love you, we love you, we love you. Oh, God, look at that. <laughs> and, then, and they don't do it on purpose, but this is how major bear markets start in fixed income. 87, 94, taper tantrum, right? Trust us with the Fed. We, there's no, we're never raising rates. We're never raising rates. We're Oh my God, did you see that employment number? Yeah. Oh my God, did you see that inflation number? Well, sorry, we may have got it wrong. Okay. Now, when the Fed does this, and I think there will probably come a come to Jesus moment sometime in the spring. My guess is probably just after Powell. You know, they, they you know, it's February that all that stuff is sorted. And it may take a while to get that sorted out because they need to this inspector general report needs to be finished. But I think maybe January, but I guess it's probably March, that we're setting ourselves up for another June-type moment where they'll just have to say, we are way behind this curve. Yeah, We're going to have to try and accelerate. I think as soon as they do that, then it's like ipso collapso time in risk assets. And we'll see how they go. You know, what a couple of my clients think that they'd have to accept to wring this out of the system. They have to accept a, a drop in the equities of you know forty to fifty percent, and it stays. Be, yeah, and it yeah. stays there, Grant. I, yeah. I don't think there's. Uh, I see this as a nineteen sixty six style, of Fed, you know, late sixties Fed that's going to bend over, and this is not Volcker, right? There is no, no willingness no. to take the pain. Um, that is politicized and at that point would panic and do QE and, you know, potentially support the bond market. And I've talked about that essentially they face uh, what you've, what's in, in market and economics referred to as the impossible trinity. So the impossible trinity is usually used in the context of a, of a peg 
currency. So if you're the HKMA in Hong Kong and you're, you've pegged the Hong Kong dollar, you could, you've chosen to peg the currency. So then you can choose either interest rates to control or money supply. You cannot no. do Monkey both. both yeah. You can't do both. Um, and as a result, the Hong Kong money supply, because they choose choose interest rates, is the most volatile thing you have ever seen in your life, right? In 2007, it was growing at almost 30% yeah. year over year. In 2008, it was falling at, you know, almost 10% year over year. I think we face essentially that dilemma when we look at an equity market, a bond market, and a, and the currency here in the US. And I think it'll have to come from pain, right? Because it's not a step that they will likely take. But I think they have no choice of those three variables to pick the equity market, because we've already talked about this financialization feedback loop into the real economy that is nigh on instant. That if you let 40 to 50% drop in equities, you'll be seeing you know, unemployment numbers that make your eyes bleed. Mm-hmm. But they can't, they can't, they daren't let that happen. Likewise, because they'll run smack into funding problems for the government, problems in the housing market, problems for the equity market, that you can't allow bond yields to go to a naturally clearing rate. Right. I mean, we're going to shove another, essentially think of it like this. We are trying to shove an unprecedented amount of debt down the throat of a global bond market, which is actually shrinking in size because of demographics. As you peak bond demand was 2016. And, you know, that's why you and I talked back then and we talked about higher bond yields and it would have been, they were the low up until COVID, right? Mm -hmm. And if it hadn't been for COVID, that would have been it. You're trying to shove them down the throat of a shrinking market at a non-economic rate because the value of the assets and the the impoverished nature of government means, and that government debt means that you can't clear them at a naturally clearing rate, right? So I think the Fed is going to have to step up again and support equities and support bonds. And to my mind, the end game is ultimately the dollar. Yeah, that's always been kind of my view on this. The only real escape valve for this that doesn't involve a dramatic and very obvious and clear pain for everybody right. is the dollar. Right. You know, I mean, it's not a painless thing, right? I mean, no, it's no, no, absolutely not. But it's not fucking sucked. Right. right, but it's not. It's not. It's again that that quote about not one man in a million being able to understand what inflation is. Right, right. You, you, no, no one will see it as the escape valve for all this, it will be a political, it will be a reason to kick the Democrats out and put the Republicans in who will be faced with exactly the same problems, but there's someone to blame for that. If the front page of the the New York Times says stock market crash or uh, or interest rates going to double digits... Government government having to impose austerity because of budget fundability. Exactly right. right. So so I think you're right. I think you're absolutely right. And, and, And that brings us... Onto currencies, and you, you at the very beginning of this conversation, you you mentioned the ERM, and, and for the people not familiar with that, the exchange rate mechanism in Europe, and when Soros famously forced the UK out of that, was the last time that central banks got punched in the nose, right? It was the right. last time that anyone was able to do that, and it was it was, it was essentially one guy who did it. Right now, 
there has been no point since then where central banks have been anywhere near vulnerable to something right. like this. And it, it strikes me that today, now, the things they would do to defend against a punch on the nose would be just about anything because this, this kind of cult of ego, if you want to call it that. Invincibility. Become, yeah, exactly. This, you're right. The cloak of invincibility is so important now that they can't. But I think you're right. We're at that moment where the chin's out and both their hands right. are by their sides and they're kind of looking over into the corner. But if someone takes a swing at them, what do they do? I mean, do we get mandated purchases of treasury bonds? Do we get the kind of capping of the yield curve, even if, even if it's an Aussie thing at the short end? Because, again, the dominoes fall in terms of what they have to do. But I keep coming back to the currency. It's the only place where all of this can actually be felt in a right. way that isn't headline newsworthy. Yeah, and I, and I look, I, I know some people think, you know, we, we have to go back to fixed exchange rate mechanisms. I, mean, I think Raoul's somewhat in that camp, and I can sort of see it, but I think it'll take quite a lot of pain to get us to that point, right? right? I don't know whether they'll do. I think the Aussie experiment's a bit of a wake-up call for these guys. Yeah, right? I, hope so. uh, I do love how, you know, they go off into Jackson Hole and they talk about their theories and you sit there sometimes in total disbelief at the at the naivety of a of a beautifully argued, yeah. impeccably calculated paper. But then you sort of say, and they're assuming this, and you were worried to work like that, right? <laughs> it's right. never going to work like what, what, you know. You know, like forward guidance, I've always found, I've always shut myself in my head in total disbelief that somehow they believe that they can control these trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars markets through the power of the English language, just rhetoric alone, right? Didn't work for bloody King Connect. Right, he got wet socks. <laughs> right, as he tried to hold back the tie, and and I, and, I, and I think we we are getting to one of those points. So I do think they would have to respond. Uh, I think, as I said, I my feeling is though my fear is as we saw in the late sixties that that actually policy error begets policy error begets policy error. That these things have greater and greater consequences. You know, one of my big fears, and you know, maybe it's it's less of an issue now that they seem to be allowing it, but you know, is Bitcoin, right? I mean, okay, if I'm right about the dollar and I think we get a 30 to 40 percent, or maybe a 40 to 50 percent decline in total, we're down 10, so another 40 percent uh, over the next few years. Uh, you know, where's Bitcoin? I don't know, is it 200,000, 250? But I do fear that at a point you arrive at a point potentially where if the pain, if the pain is sufficiently great, right, like the US has got real, real problems, that there's real question marks over the solvency of the US and the dollar is being systematically bullied, right? And we've seen this in our lifetimes, right? That you, you almost have a sort of, Banana Republic-esque, I mean, because we're running deficits that most banana republics yeah. wouldn't be allowed to, mate, okay? Um, you know, they wouldn't be allowed to blow out, you know, M2 by 30% in a year. That they could end up banning shit, right? And, yeah. and 
And crypto has always been one of those things that I've, I've worried about in that sense. So I just said to people, it's not that I don't think it could be the, the best trader and I'm being long of it, you know, since 10,000. It's not that I don't think it, it couldn't end up being one of the best trades. But when that pain is so acute, you've got to be out. You've yes. got to make sure that you're the right side of the law and the law can change pretty damn quickly. So I think, you know, you, you, can, you can envisage all sorts of things. I mean, I think people forget. Right. I mean, as I said, I was born in 1965. I mean, the world was very different. It was utterly different. Right. I mean, yeah. everything was controlled. You know, there were prices and incomes policies where they literally said, this is how much you can put the price up and this is how much you can take home. Right? And of course, all our dads got around it because they got paid in cash right, right. in those days. Right. right. But it's going to be harder to do this time. Right. Because you're going to have, you know, digital currencies where they can. Go, oh, we just dinged you 5% for holding cash, right? There's, there's a million different ways that this can end up going. But I think this idea that we, that the reversibility of these open, laissez-faire economies is just unthinkable, I think is utterly naive if, if we end up in these, right. if we end up in these positions where things, and look, I hope to God we don't, but I do struggle with understanding how we aren't almost inevitably going to a point where things can get pretty damn ugly. I mean, let's, you know, let's just, and I'm not one of these guys. I mean, what do the Chinese and Russians do when the dollar's down 30%? Do they really mm -hmm. come in and buy more? Or do they just decide? Because then they're not, it's not like last time when it, our debt was owned by the Germans, the Koreans and the yep. Japanese, all Definitely. of whom we defended. I mean, that was that was the deal, right? That's that is Pax Britannica, right? That was the thing. You know, we're the we're the guns. You buy the debt. Let us run the current account deficit, right? Sterling's the reserve. Well, that one didn't work very well, and the U.S. got and the U.K. ended up post-war with sort of lower growth and higher inflation than all their peers, right? And it took until Thatcher came, you mm -hmm. know, a long, long time later in. And then what makes people think that couldn't happen to the US? And if I were the Chinese, I'd bloody put the boot in. That's exactly when I put the boot in. Yeah, yeah, right? exactly right. Exactly right. And look, I mean, the, the other thing that is important to understand is we're, we're talking about how do you defend a currency or how do you defend a bond market? How do you defend an equity market? Which is the problem that's been faced at various junctures in the past. But what we're talking about now is how do you defend the entire system? Because it's right. not just a currency that's under threat. It's not just the equity markets, the bond markets. This is the entire global monetary system, which right. history would tell you is at or near its end of life anyway. So this is not correct. This is not correct. a strange and un unpredictable no, and outcome. I think, no, it, it really isn't. And I, and I think you know, you, as I said, I mean, I, I, there's this great paper like real rates since 1311. You can go and find it on Bank Underground, uh, the Bank of England's website or their blog. And they talk about that basically we've had disinflation since the 1460s, right? Actually, really since the 1300s, but we've had bouts of intense disinflation since then. And we've had, I think it was eight real rate depressions where they pushed real rates. And then what they talk about is you end up with these periods, and it's very interesting. And they go back and they look at, you know, post the Second World War, post the Spanish flu, and these sorts of things. And they talk about what causes these bouts of real rate depression, so super negative real rates, to reverse. And they talk about 
geopolitical challenges and changes. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about pandemics and shocks, like ge- demographic shocks. And you sit there and you go, no, really? Because you're talking about the 30-year war. Right? I mean, hundreds of years ago, right? People who don't get it, go and look up on the internet. And you just go, we can't be. But it's miraculous how they talk about these 24 months of sharp corrections of 300-odd basis points, rising real rates. And they talk about all these things that can so remarkably consistent. And you just go, you know, maybe Lacey's just going to get challenged for, you know, three or four years, right? Three or four years where this just thing just gets frighteningly out of control. And I and I think it's a it's going to be an extraordinarily challenging time. And I think the big difference is, and my clients put it well, he goes, so let's just get this straight, Julian. So, you know, we've had, you know, we had end of QE1, wobble, more QE. End of QE2, wobble, more QE. End of QE3, wobble, more QE. QE infinity, you know, COVID, not QE. Like, remember the not QE? <laughs> not QE, yes. yes. Not QE, <laughs> COVID QE. <laughs> and every time we've been able to do more because at every point, inflation hasn't been a threat. Now, the only tools available to us to address this, unless we're prepared to do pain, which seems inconceivable, yeah. right? is more QE in potentially an inflationary environment. So as he said, so is that throwing petrol on the fire? And I think that's what people need to understand, that the options available to these guys are incredibly limited. We're not there yet. They're going to play for time. They're trying to put, you can see them. I mean, I thought Powell was a very, I mean, this guy was walking a bloody tightrope. I mean, he was reading from the sodding script, right? They gamed this thing out. Okay, boss, I'm going to ask you this question. What's your response going to be? Oh, okay, Um, right? You know, the Fed staffers must have have prepped him for this, right? Very, very nervous. And he's right to be nervous because he is walking an incredibly fine line. Fuck it up. And the front end you know, could price in way too much. And we finally, we might see some of these other elements of financial conditions start to tighten. Push back too hard and long end will go, ciao, Bella, I'm out of here, in which the equity market will not like that, right? So he has to try desperately to hope that he wakes up tomorrow morning and it's gray and miserable and the weather's, the economic weather's just deteriorated on him, right? And he's like, oh, thank God. You know, 150,000 jobs, non-farm payroll, average <laughs> hourly earnings <laughs> dropped, right? I mean, he's really got to hope for that. And I just, I don't see that, mate. I mean, maybe middle yeah. of next year, maybe. It's a long, long time. So I just think these these trends continue. This pressure from the bond market just continues. Um, we're starting to watch the credit markets quite carefully um, because it does, you know, things like HYG look quite yep. tempting. Uh, to be sure, we made a lot of money on that back in heading into COVID because that was one of our favorite trades, luckily. But it was the economy was leaning that way even then. So I just, there's there's things that are ruminating, which I think are, are really quite 
interesting. And as long as the equity market just keeps yep. keep going, right, the more the pressure has to build elsewhere because you have to slow this economy down. If this, this is not stagflation, right, when you've got, as we talked about it, too much demand chasing too few goods, that's definitionally inflation. And inflation means central banks have to act. And these little central banks are absolutely yeah. showing you the way. And they're not pussyfooting around. No, no, they're 50, 75 basis 50, points. Yeah. 75, yeah. right? The Aussies yeah. just yeah. said, we're out of here. Yeah. These big boys, the consequences are just huge. So they're going to yeah. delay it. And when they give up. <laughs> well, look, at some point you end up with you know, a borderline meaningful country also breaking ranks with them. You get you get the UK breaking ranks. You get right. the Bank of Canada breaking ranks. Because right. you know, we, we've had this period of complete alignment with central bankers all around the world. Right. They've all kind of been on the same page. They've well, they all, all been the same school. Paper. They've all gone to the same school. Right. They've all studied the same paper. Right. They all go off and... I mean, I said, I remember writing somewhere once that I think it got edited out, you know, <laughs> you know, at what point does group thing just become incest, right? Right. right. <laughs> but, but they're still fighting the same problem, right? But suddenly they've all got individual responses to it and there's no collective right. response anymore. And that that breaking of the ranks is, to me, that's kind of the first shot across the bow and that yeah. look, the, Czech, the Czech Central Bank is not going to be a good little central bank and and take the pain that's coming to them because it means stepping out of line. But they also don't have the debt and they don't have the no, all the other don't. issues that we have. But right? they never had it. They never no. had it. And, you know, they, they play ball. So because... they can afford to be responsible. Right, right. right? Yes, you know what? That's a perfect way to put it. They can perfect afford to, to be responsible, right? And, and, and you know, it, it's, it's like you can see the plane, the engine's on fire, or it's climbing so high now, this plane, right, that the air's beginning to get thin and, you know, some of the people in the plane are going, I, I'm, I'm, I'm out, right? Because I know what happens here, I'm out, right? And and yet the ECB and the Fed are like sitting there desperately holding this thing on this trajectory, yeah. you know, and it's shaking really badly and, you know, and I, I anyway, whatever. I, it, it's, you can see this is, this is going to come, I think, to a, uh, and I just been saying to people, look, this is now a time to start running. Look, even if you just looked at the balance sheet and you said the balance sheet is slowing down, and you looked at the equity market and the correlations to the balance sheet, equity markets have big wobbles when they turn the tap off, right? As I said, you've created a crack addict to whom you have now become beholden, right? You take the crack away, he's not going to behave nicely. He's going to throw a big wobbler. And so we are coming to a point, and maybe it's next, next June, but I could see it being speeded up, right? Where that crack is going away. And that's a bad enough time for markets. And when you put all these other things together that could start to challenge it, fine. Sit there, trade your Tesla, trade your other stuff, right? But for Christ's sake, run tight risk. This is yeah. not an environment where you just go, you know, here I go, balls to the wall. There's nothing to fear here. I'm all in, right? Because this is not the right point of the cycle. Yeah, yeah, great point. Well, listen, before, before we close, one other thing I just want to ask you about, and that's um, you've, you've written and posted a lot of charts about ARC. Because obviously that, that but, but that's the poster child 
right. for this, right? If you want to look at the equity market and what all this means in terms of infinite duration, right. that's where you find it. So right. just lay out why that is so important and why this particular scenario that we've talked about, that could be one of the best places to watch for it all playing So have out. you got puts, mate? In full disclosure, I would tell you if I did. So, no, I mean, look, he's, he's Kathy Wright, definitively, right? She's definitively right that technology changes the world. We are in a period of accelerative technology, but this isn't new. No, it's right? not. It's not. We have been in technological and productivity advancements, and that's what technology delivers to the business is productivity. Since they started to enclose... About 1830, yeah. No, 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 no. I mean, literally 1460. That's what that bank oh, yeah, paper right. tells you, right? right. Okay. I mean, basically, since you started to enclose common land in the UK into farms and got built up your efficiency, you've had disinflation, right? I mean, you know, that's what we do. We invent shit. Yeah. I mean, do you not think the wheel was a big deal, right? Do you not think... I mean, I did... English history, right? The spinning Jenny, right? Yeah. And all this sort of stuff, right? This truly transformed, built a sodding empire, right? On the back of Sheffield steel and, and Lancashire cloth and, and so on and so forth, right? These were truly transformative, right? Is Square that big a deal in that context, you know? Are some of these things that big a deal? This is not new. Right? When you look at ARC, right, ARC was nowhere, nowhere. You know, it was in the, ARC was in the range of, you know, from 2018 through 2020, I mean, it had gone up nicely, but it was basically in the range of 40 to 60. Yeah. And then QE Infinity came in under COVID, and the thing went from 40 to 160. Yeah. Well, there's some great companies in there, right? But we're just seeing that, you know, we're all a bit sick of Zoom and, you know, they aren't going to change the world quite so quickly. I mean, it's transformative in some respects, right? But, you know, we used to do conference calls on the telephone. Right? I mean, it, it, you know, that way we could all pick our nose and scratch our asses and no one would see it, right? And sit there in our pyjamas, right? And not have to sit there with a shirt and a pair of boxer shorts on, right? And pretend, <laughs> pretend that we were dressed. You know, um, so I look at this stuff and I just think it goes back to what creates a bubble. A bubble is a fantastic story and a shitload of liquidity. Yeah. And then you get devotees, right? And devotees. And devotees just pump this thing up to the point of absurdity. And I would argue that the move from you know 100 to 160 is, is potentially absurdity. So all these factors are... Right, Kathy's right about, and I've I've tweeted about, you know, how she's come out and say it's definitively deflation, and she's taken on these comments about hyperinflation, mm -hmm. right? And, and and I don't agree in with hyperinflation at this stage. Could we get there? Of course you can. You got to do an awful lot wrong. Do I think we're going there next week? No, but neither do I think we're going back to deflation. But she has to defend deflation. Right? Of course, yeah. She has to defend deflation, and she's right because we've had it since 1460, okay? But maybe we're going to have one of these little periods where we just deviate from the long-term downtrend, 
Okay. And those deviations could be bloody expensive. Yeah. If you find that maybe real yields are so low, but nominal bond yields in the US rise considerably. Okay. Because that's what happened in the late 60s. We went from nominal bond yields went from four to eight. Real yields actually fell, but that pro, you know, most of these companies have to fund themselves or they have no you know, profit from nominal. And I suspect what we could find is that ARC and all these things, you just bought them at the wrong bloody time. Mm -hmm. Right? The lesson I think of the dot-com bubble, which you and I lived, is the internet was truly transformative. Yep. Okay. If you bought Microsoft, which is still around, we're not talking pets.sodding.com, right? Or Cisco in March of 2000, right? Wasn't a great trade. I'm afraid that, you know, these companies could be fantastic companies that Kathy owns. But if she's bought them at the wrong time, you get carted. They may go on to change the world if they can still get funding. Right? They may go on to change. I will say that both Microsoft and Cisco were real companies. Some of these do strike me as a yeah, bit yeah. pets.com-y. Yeah. Okay? But you just paid too much because you bought into a story that was driven by liquidity. Was back then. Right? It was the Y2K money. Yep. The minute the tap got turned off, I remember sitting in Paul Tudor Jones's office and one of his clients, one of his guys said, oh, yeah, we were sitting in the London office and Paul came over the hoot from New York, well, from Greenwich, I think it was, and said, they've given us the money, start buying shit. Literally those special facilities. And the, and the NASDAQ just went, woo, right? This is what people need to understand. You always get bubbles in a great story. Right? The only one I don't quite understand was the tulip bubble i don't quite understand how <laughs> right. that fight okay but all these other things you know the the railway bubble in latin america right i mean yep. transformative right if it hadn't been for argentinian bully beef right that was only you know canned beef that was only there because we could get the we built the railways and investors got absolutely caned on the investments themselves but that was transformative without that bully beef grant we could have never fought the First well, yeah, World War exactly right. and, yep. million, and killed millions of men because we couldn't have fed them in the winter. And if we had done what we did every single year and stopped fighting in September and come back in March. Right? Maybe in the interim, we'd have fixed the problem. Okay? You know, to say that that wasn't transformative is wrong. I mean, all these things are transformative. The internet is utterly transformative, right? AI will be transformative. Self-driving cars will be transformative. Buy them at the wrong time, though, the stocks, you'll get caned. And we're coming to a period where that liquidity that has driven these things may have to get scaled back. Because if I'm right about the inflation and this excessive growth and financial conditions being still incredibly easy, these central banks will try. I mean, the Fed has been hawkish. They were surprisingly hawkish in, or sorry, in June. Hedge funds had a lousy Q3. I mean, they got yep. closed, right? Because they bought into this stuff. Don't trust these central banks. They will be the unreliable boyfriend. Okay. And, you know, we've all been in that relationship and you come out feeling pretty abused. Okay. And that's where I sort of fear we'll be.
Well, that's, that wraps it up in a perfect bow, mate. This has been just so much fun. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'm glad I'm glad we've had it while I'm in quarantine because it gives me more time to sit and think about it all. But look, um, let the people listening to this who don't follow you already, let them know where they came because the stuff you put out on Twitter and the stuff that you release when you write it is just, I mean, it's must-read stuff. And so the more people that read it, the better, frankly. Well, thanks, mate. So uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, it's uh, at JulianMI2. I'm on LinkedIn as well, where you can post a little bit longer, but I don't post quite as much. If you're a retail investor, contact us at supportedmi2partners.com. We can hook you up with uh, with the Macro Insider stuff, which I do with Raoul. And then if you're institutionally interested, you can use the same address, support at uh, mi2partners.com. And we'll uh, we'll talk to you about the institutional offering. Fantastic. And it is, it's just, it's just wonderful stuff, mate. You, you, I, I love talking to you. It's been too long since we did it in person. So yeah, I didn't think it, you loved it, me anymore, Grant. It was, oh, come on. <laughs> I, I am not your unreliable boyfriend, my friend. I will always love you. Just, don't you worry about that. All right, mate. Well, I'll talk right. to you soon. Take care of yourself. Cheers. Bye-bye. See you, Julian. Bye. Well, I promised you a fun and enlightening conversation and Julian delivered exactly that. You know, the inflation numbers he quoted make it almost impossible to see the current standoff between central banks and market forces ending peacefully. The corner into which the world's central banks have painted themselves is something about which I've written often in the past. And as Julian highlighted, it's become so tight now that there no longer seems to be room for all of them. And as more and more of their cohort breaks ranks with the Fed and the ECB, we could be in for some major fireworks. So my thanks to Julian Brigden for what was a wonderful hour plus of wit and wisdom. If you don't follow him already, then you really should do. At the very least, follow him on Twitter. You'll find him at JulianMI2. And and check out the firm's website at mi2partners.com. I'll be back again soon. In the meantime, thanks again for listening. Nothing we discussed should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.